Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. Today, David sits down with Dick Erath, founder of Erath Vineyards. Hear how they met and both became pioneers in the Willamette Valley. Enjoy. The third winery in our series is Erath Vineyards. We met up with Dick Erath on October 9th, 2020 at his original vineyard property. Today it is known as Shehalem Mountain Vineyard and is owned by Geodesy Wine Capra Vineyards. I first met Dick in April 1971 when we stopped our car in front of the rented luggage cabin where he and his family were living. We were hoping to see some wine grapes which we'd heard had been planted in the area. And as it turned out, Dick knew where some were planted. They just weren't next to the cabin. Thanks so much for, um, first of all, getting us permission to come to the original vineyard that you planted. Uh, These vines were planted what year? 1969, spring of 1969. So they're probably the third oldest, I mean, this is the third oldest site in the Willamette Valley at this point. I think, yeah. After... Dick, uh, after yeah, and Dave, Dave and, and Chuck. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go back before that because one of the things we're trying to do in this series is talk about the people and what their background was and what they brought into the industry. Yeah. You grew up in the Bay Area, right? Right. Was wine served at home? Did you have wine or did your folks have wine as you were growing up? It's interesting because... Uh, we liked wine, but we didn't really drink it that often on occasion, you know, Thanksgiving kind of thing, uh, but not not regularly. And then uh, then after Keenan and I got married and we were drinking, you know, heart, you know, whatever those things were and with the olive floating around in them, <laughs> 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 then we discovered wine. So you discovered it independent of your family. Yes, although it's interesting when you look at my family's background, they all had something to do with wine back in the old country. I mean, your father even was a, a cooper, right? right? He, had, he had to build a barrel from scratch when he was 16 years old, with all with the hand tools. And it was for wine, not for... Yeah, right, well, whatever. In, in that part of Germany where he was, you, you, put, you put brandy in there or wine, you know. Okay. <laughs> That was down by Weinsberg or yeah, something. Yeah. Weinsberg. Yeah. When would you have started drinking wine? Would that have been probably when I was about late twenties? Anyway, well, I was in the late twenty twenty seven when I was twenty seven, twenty eight. So that would have been in the early sixties? Yeah. Mid sixties, yeah. something like that? It, it was interesting because I had um, a good friend who loved wine and had a great collection of Cabernets in in, uh, in from Napa Valley. And he went to his house once for dinner and exposed me to some wonderful older wines. Yeah, that was very nice. So he kind of, it kind of evolves, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. You were evolving an interest in wine as, as something to drink. You were still working... Yeah, I was still working electronics then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At some point in California still... You got into home winemaking. Right. 
Where were the grapes coming from and what varieties and? Well, as it turns out, I know you had interested in photography. I'd done a lot of photography over the years. And Barney Fetzer, before he even had a winery, was selling grapes to home winemakers. And he wanted to have some brochures. So he needed photographs. So I was a photographer for his brochures. So uh, instead of charging him money, I just took some grapes. <laughs> took them to Walnut Creek and started making wine in, in the garage in Walnut Creek. That was uh, not the first wine I made, but that was like in 66, I think, 66, 67. Sometime soon after 66, you became interested in moving up here. That's because in 67, I took a short course at Davis, and I was talking to Vern Singleton, the prophet, in this one class we were taking on aging a wine, and I asked him about you know, what's going on. You know, I didn't understand why people couldn't grow grapes other places besides California. No one ever explained that to me. <laughs> and, and, and so I asked him about is anything going on up north? And he said, well, there's these two guys that went through my class last year, Chuck Corey and Dave Lett. And so then, then I was interviewed at, at Tektronix. I drove up at harvest time. Oh, by the way, Richard Summers in the back of the class. Oh, in Vern's class that year. The, that year, he was in the, in the back of the class, and, and uh, Vern pointed him out to me, and and I introduced myself, and he was very enthusiastic about someone had an interest in Oregon. He quickly gave me a bottle of wine, which I, you know, got drove back lightning speed to Walnut Creek from Davis, and opened it up, and it smelled like a whiskey barrel. <laughs> I, and I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, he didn't even bother even rinsing them out. <laughs> wow. And so, but there was some nice fruit character behind all that whiskey yeah. smell. So. Just, and then and Tektronix then decided, when I did the interview, um, that's when I met Chuck. Dave was out selling books at the time. Chuck was home and spent a, way into like four o'clock in the morning talking about grapes and wine in, in, his, in the old house in Forest Grove. And he probably explained why grapes could be grown in Oregon at that point. I mean, if yeah. you hadn't already known. Yeah, he told told me about his master's thesis that yep. talks about you know the the, the limitation on climate and, and all the work he'd done on that and uh, it was you know it was an interesting paper at the time. Yeah, yeah. You were coming up here and interviewing with Tektronix, and you were really a home winemaker at that point. Right. Was there something that pushed you from working at Tectonics and being a home winemaker to thinking that you should do something bigger than that? Yeah, I, I had a walnut orchard in Walnut Creek, a small orchard, only three acres. And, um, and with three acres of walnuts, you're at the mercy of the processes and the association down there where you sold the nuts to. And I said, you know, I like to plant grapes, but I don't want to be a, a victim of somebody else's marketing company. So I said, well, let's plant grapes and make wine. And I had a background in, you know, from Davis, and then also when I was going to school, I, I worked in a brewery, so I had ferment, some fermentation knowledge that I get garnered there. And You went to Davis as an undergraduate? 
they they held refresher courses, and it was you booked your course through the Wine Institute, and and you and I had to kind of fudge that a little bit, saying I was told the Wine Institute I don't have a winery right now, but I'm going to have one, <laughs> and so they passed judgment on me and said, okay, you can go to the class. <laughs> It was nice because Andre Chelichev was my was sitting next alongside of me. You know. Wow. Yeah. Because everyone's going back for refresher classes. And this was the class that Richard Summers was in yeah, as well. Yeah, so yeah. this was Vern's class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So already before you came up here, you had the vision that this could be an occupation, not just a. Oh yeah, I didn't. I was not going to be just a grower. I pretty much went in thinking that way. I never thought it's just being a grower. And I, I mean, I assume that you knew more about winemaking than you did about grape growing at that point. He probably at the outset, but the grape growing thing got into my skin pretty rapidly. And in, in, in 1977, uh, I spent six weeks in Europe and I saw how the, the French and the Germans were training their vines. And, and I said, because of the cool climate, and so I brought, I brought back the notion of catch wires. No one was using them then. And we started using catch wires and doing the BSP systems. Yep. It, was, it was enlightening. 77, so. 77 was. Eight it. years after you planted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you planted these vines in the first place, was it more, more a California sprawl uh, training system? Um, Back then we had a two-wire system yeah. and a kind of a sprawl. Yeah, and whatever happened and after it, that. It, because, it happened, yeah. 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 That first trip up when you were going to take grapes back from Summers, after interviewing uh, at Tektronics, you met with Chuck Corey and stayed up until 4 a.m. When did you start meeting others who were up here? I mean, there weren't that many at that point. No, it was really no. only... So on the way back to California, I stopped by Summers. He was harvesting. And he let me go out and pick grapes. I, I picked, uh, uh, I think, Gewurz, Demeter, and some Pinot. Took them back to Walnut Creek and made wine. Not a lot, but you know, whatever I could fit in the trunk of the car. <laughs> you know, cars going down the freeway. <laughs> Juice is running out of the trunk. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that got me on the, really to understand winemaking better was when I was working at the brewery, we had, there was a, a thing called Berkeley Yeast Lab, and which became Scott Laboratories subsequently. And this, the fellow that started Berkeley Yeast Lab, um, I got to know and went to his house in the evenings. And uh, he was just, uh, we, we would just talk about making wine. And he would tell me everything. He, he was he was quite a brilliant winemaker. Yeah. You know, he knew what he's doing. And, and particularly from the technical chemical yeah, 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 chemistry yeah. So, side. Yeah. Uh, Julius Julius Fessler was his name. And uh, a nice guy. So sometime after taking those grapes to California, you got the job offer from tech. Yes. And moved up? Yes. And where did you live? Uh, the first place was uh, I came up ahead of the family and found a house in Beaverton to rent, which we rented for about a year. And then I found the cabin on King's Great Road because it was opposite the vineyard. You could look out the back of the cabin and see the vineyard. That, that was about the only thing going for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was pretty fundamental cabin music. Yeah. <laughs> but in 69, you found this place. Were you actively looking for vineyards by yeah, then? Yes. By that time, Tech had a flying club. Uh, we owned our own aircraft. And... <laughs> And where the Beaverton Mall now was Bernard Airstrip. It was the second oldest airstrip in, on the West Coast, I think. Wow. Yeah. So we would get go, I'd take, pour over the U.S. Coast and geodetic maps and say, okay, these look like potential sites. Go up in the planes and look at them from the air. And then and then they looked pretty good from the air. Then the next step was to get in a family car on the weekends and start out and go out and start knocking on doors. I found out early on you don't ask a farmer Will you sell me some land? You, 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 that kind of gets them ruffled. You have to say, do you know anything around here that might be for sale? And so that's why I got Mrs. Dopp. I mean, I came back a couple weeks later, and she said, well, maybe I'll sell you some land. Because I just she had 100 acres, and I just wanted the north, this, uh, north 48. So Mrs. Dopp was a descendant of the family, or married into the family that was the original land grant right. holder. Right? Yeah. I guess in the old days they grew potatoes here and hops. Oh. Yeah. But when you arrived? It was a walnut orchard. It was oh, a walnut, walnut orchard that had yeah. been hit by the Columbus Day storm. And everyone back then, they thought they could maybe save the walnut orchard by taking a, a cat a tractor and riding the, pulling the trees up and hopefully, they, but the tap root was broken and it didn't work. So, so when I so when I bought this place, it was just all these terrible walnut trees everywhere. All sort of half yeah, on so the ground, like like this, you know, the half mast. <laughs> and was there equipment that came with the property? What? No equipment. It was just it was just ground and walnut trees. Ground and walnut trees, and the fellow that had been taking care of the walnut orchard. Uh, had had a, the D2 cat down there, and he helped me with the clearing when we had to clear all these walnut trees out of there here. And D2 is not a huge machine. No, not, not a big tractor at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing I had is a big tractor going through with a with a brush rake and, and windrowing the, the trees. Then Tektronics had a, 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 a newspaper. It came out like, I don't know, once a week or something. Pretty pop. And I just advertised free firewood. And this place sounded like a Korean battlefield. <laughs> Everyone was out here with their chainsaws and smoke was flying in here. <laughs> and they're cutting up all the trees. And they were burning walnut. They were burning walnut, which is probably not the best thing to burn, but, you know, it was better than nothing. I guess. Yeah, well. Yeah, when the price was right, you know. At the time, yeah. yeah. So that was 66, uh, I no, mean no. 60, was that yeah. 68 when you Six, bought it? Yeah, 68 when I bought it, and and, and uh, 68 was eight, eight inches of rain in August. <laughs> it was terrible. All the, all the bean growers in the valley, they were still doing pole beans. Right. The pole bean business went out, they all fell down. They, they wouldn't hold their, 
No, they don't. They only put them in the ground a short yeah. distance. They all, that's how we got. Bill Fuller and I went around chasing these farmers and getting their stakes and their wire. You know. <laughs> and at some point, you got some cuttings from Barney. Barney Fetzer, because I'd been working with him, he, he supplied me with, with cuttings, and it's, and Carl Wente, too. And Carl was very supportive of, of Oregon because he he went to uh, school in uh, UO. So he knew Oregon fairly well from his... Oh, know, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So you had cuttings that you were... Where were you rooting these cuttings that you were going to plant? These were rooted at uh, uh, Vic Victoria's nursery down in Dundee. Oh, in Dundee, yeah. In Dundee. Yeah. And you planted them out the next spring in 69? Yeah. Dug, dug them by hand and, and planted them out. Yeah. So what is this? This is uh, a clone of Pinot that I got from, from um, Barney. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't Another know. mysterious clone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then it goes into Gamay Beaujolais. If you go a few rows over, and you can probably see the upright habitat over there. I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds like so far this was pretty much you and maybe some volunteers from tech, your family, yeah, yeah. Um, that were planting these original vines and yeah, starting yeah. this up. And later on, we got, uh, you know, back in, in the old days in Oregon, kids that went to school were were let out of school at at strawberry season and they, okay. they picked strawberries, they picked beans. So we had these housewives around that had grown up picking and so and we were we tapped into that labor source. But there that was the end of that generation. I mean yeah. after that no one was interested anymore. Right. And so that's when the Hispanic guys came on board. Right. Yeah. How long do you think that lasted? Ten years? Not even? Don't know. Don't know how. Yeah. Because that's really an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. I mean, we've we pretty much educated anybody born after World War II that whatever you do, you don't want to work in agriculture. Yeah. Um, but clearly there was a, a generation before that that. Yeah. And you have that, I don't know what it is, that, that Oregon spirit of, of, you know, you got to do something with the land, you know. You can't ignore it, you know. Right. One of the things that I realized uh, numerically is that six of the first ten wineries in the North Willamette Valley were started people who had emigrated immediately from Northern California. Yeah. Why did that happen? Well, I think we're, we were looking for cool climate situations. I mean, I was. I'd fallen in love with Pinot in California. I went, went at a friend's house. The fellow that had all the Cabernets also brought out a bottle of 55 Inglenook Pinot. It was a dynamite bottle of wine. I said, well, this is what Pinot. That's the one that Charles Chef said was the one vintage that, yeah, yeah. that, that it really worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other ones, he said second crop did pretty well from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> The only person you'd met before coming up here is Richard Summers. That was, yeah, from here. What was the early development of the industry as a, such as it was, people talking to each other, working with each other, et cetera? What, how did that start? Um, who was involved? 
I guess it goes back to when we had a small nucleus of growers that we would meet at the Tiger Fire Hall. You don't think it was before that with the Viticulture Development Committee? Well, that's about the same time, I think. VD, OVD, Oregon VD. Yeah, the, the, the years of the acronyms, you mean? You know, yeah. you know, <laughs> TWARB and TWERP and all, yeah. <laughs> all of them. Uh, because that, that we would go to that, go there like once a month and, and, and meet and talk about stuff. And someone would bring wine and it was generally a, a gallon jug of something out of California. And the, the cheese was a better deal because we got usually a block of Tillamook. <laughs> so after you planted this vineyard, your plan was to make wine here. Exactly. And you built the building down below here. Right. Um, which wasn't necessarily a lavish construction. No. And then, then we ended up not being able to get any significant water. So we abandoned that. And, and that's about the same time that my partner, Cal Knudsen, came along. And he needed to have the, the ground that he bought in the Dundee Hills developed. So we we did both vineyards at that time. And and he was a businessman in Seattle, Cal was. Yeah. And but he had bought land in the Dundee Hills before talking to you? Yes. Why did he do that? You know? uh, well he had hired Dave Lett to find him some ground. And they they had a piece of ground pegged out down near Hopewell somewhere. And they were in a real estate office ready to sign the, the, the documents. And and they, the seller said, well, what are you going to do with this ground? And he said, well, we're going to plant grapes. It was, and it was against this guy's religion. And so, no, we're not selling. Was that next to the church down there? I don't think it's a, I don't know who it was. Because that happened twice, I mean, at least once again after that with oh. somebody else. Yeah. Okay. With this vineyard and then with, with Cal, the the plan was to plant a vineyard and then eventually make wine together. Right, and I'd already st had started making wine, so we and so I made his wine and my wine, and we soon realized that marketing two different brands in, in, in small wineries was an uphill battle. So we combined and made it uh, the Canutz uh, and Erath label. Yeah. yeah, I mean, your first wines were Erath Vineyard. Correct. Yeah. How long were you and Cal involved? Oh, we were partners until 1988. Wow. Yeah, yeah. long time. Yeah. And Paige now is running the show over there. This yeah. daughter. Right. So we already touched on the beginnings of this. You were clearly first a winemaker, but. Yeah, obviously you have to. Yeah, you have to have. You know, the more I got into it, the more I realized that you know it's it's one it's one thing. It just happens to be the grapes are outside and the winemaker is inside. And once you add wine, there were a couple other jobs that needed to be done, like selling it. <laughs> selling it. <laughs> Whoever thought. Whoever thought. I remember those days when the card table came out in front of the garage and. Open on weekends, we had a mailing list, and people would come out and they bought wine. Not a lot, but they bought it. When would that have started? Do you think that you started setting up a table and selling wine at the 73, 74? Really? Yeah, that early? yeah. Cool. 
I, my first vintage, my first vintage was '72, and that was uh, quite an experience going out trying to sell that in Portland. You know, I remember Pepe's wine shop in Lake Oswego. That he, he, Pepe told me, oh, I said, I've got some wine. He said, Well, Sonny, what kind of fruit and berry are you using? And I had to explain to him this was the real stuff, you know. <laughs> and did he immediately buy? No. <laughs> I think he was very cautious. I mean, it took, I think it was until 19. I'm not sure about the year, but I think it was 84 or somewhere in there. It was the first year where Oregon actually sold more grapes, more wine outside the state than they sold inside the state. Then Steve Carey came along and and we all did our guerrilla marketing with him. Right. In the beginning, you were a teeny winery like everybody else. Yeah. Um, But at, at some point, you must have made a decision that you wanted to be bigger than where you were starting. I think the vineyards made that decision for us. You know, there's a lot of acres being planted and and, uh, it's not going to be small when you have a lot of fruit and there was no, we we didn't, people back then were not buying grapes. Right. So So all of Knudsen's had to be made into wine that you sold. Yes. And all of this. And all of this. Yeah. So you sort of backed your way into being a larger winery, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think um, I learned a lot about running a business from Cal. He's a very, very accomplished businessman. And, um, so it, it helped a lot, you know, having him teach me, basically. And did he understand how wine was sold? and how to position the company uh, from a marketing standpoint and so forth? I think, he, yeah, he under, maybe not the, some of the finer points of it, but he knew the general overall scope of it. At some point, I, I was so buried in paperwork that I came to you and asked for a recommendation of an accountant, and you helped me with that. But it seemed to me at that point that and that would have been probably 85 or so. Sounds about right, yeah. That, that you, you were much more knowledgeable about how the accounting and the systems of management worked in a winery than some of the other people. Yeah. And was that from Cal? That oh, more from, from Jack, I think. Jack, and from Jack. Jack. Jack and I taught one another, you know, he... He so, knew the fundamentals of accounting, but he didn't understand the, at the time. He didn't know the nuances of, of yeah. wine. So Jack Irvin, the accountant. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So in essence, you you and he batted around the issues of how to make that work. Yeah. So that you could have a balance sheet and yeah, we'll charts of accounts. Yeah. And yeah. All the things that all the things that you actually had in a business. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What was Cal's role as opposed to Jack's role in that? Well, Cal had uh, used uh, the Anderson Company accounting firm for his own personal taxes. And at that time, Jack was working for Anderson. So that's how I got to know. How you you met him, yeah. Yeah. And he spun off on his own, and I became his first accountant. Wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Ultimately, your understanding of the business of 
vineyards, the business of wine, the business of selling wine, uh, allowed you to sell the winery. You by then had yet a third vineyard, which you kept for a number of years and then sold that. Um, and, and both of those sales, it seems to me, were very successful, um, particularly the, the sale of the winery, I think was a, a demonstration of how important Oregon wine yeah, was yeah. to companies like Sam Michel that bought it. Yeah, I think that was. I mean, yeah. they didn't just. They, re they realized they didn't have any Pinot in their portfolio and, and they, wanted, they wanted to have that and they realized that that's where the consumer was going on red wines. And actually, I got uh, that was through my distributor in Portland, put us to hooked us up together. And they agreed not only to buy the company, but to fund a foundation. Well, I took well, they, they I funded the foundation out of out of the proceeds. Okay. So. And that foundation has been funding all sorts of projects yeah. ever since. Yeah. That's been another aspect of this whole thing that I never knew would happen to me, that, that I would be able to you know, have a foundation and, and uh, give back to the you know, community, to the industry. And, and it's, it's been uh, pretty gratifying to be able to do that. We've been able, we, we started off with uh, around $3 million and we put a million dollars back into the industry and we still have our $3 million. So we've been able to, you know, We've done a pretty good job of managing our portfolio. Nice. Yeah. Just to continue that story, some of your time since um, you sold the winery you spent in Arizona. Right, it was, um, my distributor in Arizona was doing some fundraiser in, down there involved playing golf and I was an avid golfer back in those days. And so went down there and, and, uh, and, and it's a nice place to spend winter. Not the rest of the year, but winter, you know. So then I, I bought a house down there and, and of course, you know, I can't, then the next thing that happens, it triggers in my mind, why aren't there any grapes around here? <laughs> so I found a neighbor down there who had actually planted some in his backyard. He was about a mile from me. And he, then we went together down into the uh, Cochise County and uh, we bought property together with the idea of planting grapes, which I had already planted some. We were gonna plant more together than he had a very unfortunate uh, accident. He had, uh, um, he, he had uh, um, psoriasis of the spinal column, internal. Mm -hmm. And I never knew you could have that. Yeah. And uh, so he wakes up one morning paralyzed. And they say, well, we can just open that up and take care of it. And after, you know, seven hours under the knife, and he woke up the next morning, still couldn't move. Mm. And so he finally 
works his way back to get some motor skills back again. And he's driving out to uh, Wilcox, where the, there's a little small winery there at the time, next to the property that we bought together. And the um, he had taken a barrel out there to, as a, a deed, a friendly deed to the fellow that owned the winery there. And he had it on a trailer. And uh, the trailer, hit because of it still had problems, coordination and everything because of the, the operation, the trailer hitch came down and took off two of his fingers. And he packs up the two fingers and you know, drives 80 miles back in the Tucson to the hospital. It was, it was too late. Lost the fingers. So this guy has a great sense of humor because his email signed Three Fingers Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> but you planted grapes, you made some wine. Yeah, I made a lot. Actually, I mean, it's amazing down there. The, the, uh, it's like, compared to Oregon, it's like grapes on steroids. I mean, the, the, the growth starts down there in about March, not too much different than here. But then it's like all of a sudden... They, they grow like crazy. And they, in, in the first year, the canes look like two-year-old wood. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the projects that were industry projects that you were involved with that involved other people? Well, the first one that I can remember was um, Chuck and Dave and I had found out that uh, there was a nursery in southern Oregon near Roseburg that was propagating a lot of grape cuttings. And they were, they were all virus-infected stuff. And we said, we can't let this go out into the industry. So we ended up lobbying the, the Department of Agriculture to shut it down, and, and they did. And out of that came the, all the quarantines and the things. The quarantine for the state. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was the first of the industry thing. They were going to put a garbage dump right down here in this valley. Washington County said, we want, we want that valley down there for landfill. And I had to go on TV and fight that one. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Was that in the late 60s? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Wow. So now they're down outside of McMinnville, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why they went down there. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably a better location. This one, they would have filled up a long time ago. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How about a little wine? How about a little wine? So, so this Prince Hill, Clone 95, there are a couple of different stories involved with this wine. Yeah, only two? <laughs> That's good. Well, okay, you're right. <laughs> One of the stories has to do with not just Clone 95, but clones and... and yeah, well, which you were very instrumental in well, that whole thing. But, but you as well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you... I went to Goheen back early on and said, Look, Austin, we want to. We want everything that you guys may have thrown out because it's not suitable for California. We want to bring it to Oregon, which we did. We got a big collection. Went up to Ron Cameron, and then then subsequent to that, you started bringing in stuff from France, yeah. Espaguet and wherever. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. I remember in December of '73, we had a tasting at Chuck Quarry's house of every. Pinot that we could get our hands on, whether it was commercial or home, yeah. trying to understand this idea of clones. And you'd been working with Chuck initially, partners in, in a nursery, and then you separated and did things individually. Yeah, yeah. So 
I don't remember that tasting, but I mean, it sounds like something we would do. Yeah. It's, I remember it only because I had to organize it because Chuck wasn't going to do it. But, <laughs> but out of that came this idea that Pomar was really the most interesting clone for Oregon. Yeah. And so almost immediately everybody was just ordering Pomar. Yeah. The nursery business that you and Chuck had, but started in 71 or so? We, we, we both had ordered plants from Oakey Nursery near Sacramento. Yeah. And they were they were they came as registered plants, so we were able to put them in a mother block and propagate off of them. And I had basically bought a little bit of everything Oki had. Chuck's was stuck with Chardonnay and Pinot, so we we combined our vines together to make mother a mother block, and that's how we got in the nursery business together. Was that mother block planted someplace? It was the mother block was in. Gallon cans, in yeah. Gallon okay. cans, yeah. In, uh, and that was first in southeast Portland. Well, first it was up at Chuck's. Oh, at Chuck's. Uh, yeah, we had a, we put a put a greenhouse up up there. That's did all the propagation there, and then we realized that we needed a much larger space to for the upcoming orders, and that's when we found a, a, a an abandoned full big commercial greenhouse out on uh, Highway 26, a way out yeah. there, yeah. Powell, yeah. Powell, on Powell Boulevard somewhere. Yeah. I can't remember where. Hundred and 40th or something like that. But you and Chuck had sort of different ideas about how businesses ran and... <laughs> yeah. We did. And so that didn't last that long? No, it lasted a year and year and three months or something like that. So. I, but you continued in the, the nursery business. I did. Uh, and, I, and I used... Uh, I have started, starting then, I don't know what year it was, 85, 86, something like that, I started renting ground on Grand Island because the soils there are wonderful Newburgh series sandy loams that you can grow anything and it would grow monster vines down there and it was fine until phylloxera came along and I was and then I did, we did some grafting back at the Dundee, I had a greenhouse and we did some grafting there. But you know that grafting is an art, and it's like a it's like a chain. If you have one link go bad, the whole thing falls. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I sort of remember somebody having an Omega grafter, and yeah, yeah. We had a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. they still use those. Were there other um, industry efforts together that you were participating in in the seventies? Do you think the legislature was proposing? Uh, a tax on wine that was going to go to alcoholic rehabilitation. And so we said, okay, we want a tax on wine to, to help develop the industry. And that came through the tax on the grapes. It started out at fifteen dollars a ton, I think. Twelve fifty, I think. Twelve fifty, and, yeah. and it's table up to, wine research advisory board. Yeah, and I was president of that for the first four years, and then it became wine advisory board. Yeah. So yeah, it was. It started in seventy-seven or something. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Did that require going to the legislature, and were you testifying in front of the legislature on that? I think, yeah, well, several of us were all testifying. Because we didn't have a lobbyist or anything. No. Bill Nelson came later. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good wine, by the way. 
still smell it out here in the open? It smells all right? Yeah, you can actually. So this is Clone 95, which has a long and tortured history. Um, <laughs> this is something you were responsible for. True. I got the clone from an acquaintance who had been skiing in Switzerland, stopped back through Burgundy on the way to and to catch a plane in Paris and goes by goes by Clovisot and and they're pruning at the time. And and right by the, the big stone gate as you right at the entry, there's brush laying on the ground. He asks, What are you gonna do with us? And they say, Well we're gonna burn it. He says, Can I have some? And they sure and he stuffs several cuttings in his trench coat, gives them to me and I I got scared to death because of virus problems. So I sent them down to Austin Goheen at Davis as Austin cleaned this stuff up for me. He says, yeah, send me $200 and we'll clean it up. And I didn't hear anything more. I'm busy, you know, with my own efforts and didn't hear anything from him. Then he retires and I thought, this is the end of it. And then in 2002 or 2004, I get a note from this is, dear Mr. Urath, your vines are ready. This is like, you know, some 20 some odd years later. <laughs> They do, they do work in slow ways, those guys at the, in academia. <laughs> That's an amazingly long time yeah. for something that probably took six months. Or Well, it failed, you know, it failed, um, I guess, more than once to make it through the heat treatment. So, and back then, I think they had to do a whole cycle on it. I don't know if you Yeah, oh, and, and do, yeah. yeah. And then do all the indexing. And then later on, it was found out the Clone 95 has the latent, the latent form of leaf roll in it, and they they wanted to get rid of that because they can put it in the Russell Ranch program if they can get rid of everything. So it they did that, and now the clone is called the new clone is called 117. So, but this is 95. And you planted this? Yes, but I didn't know. You know, it was amazing. I didn't. We had enough budwood uh, to graft uh, some, I think it was Pinot Gris we plant, grafted over, and got enough grapes the following year to make like 55 gallons of wine, and, and the, the other five gallons was a Curie clone, and, it, and it was, that was in 2012. And the, the wine was, I said, this is dynamite wine. I didn't know what I had, you know, at that point. I guess, it, you know, didn't a lot of the Burgundians kind of get turned off on the Dijon clones after a while? Because not much well, they don't need to do it if you have this. Well, yeah, I mean, what they have is just this huge genetic population. Yeah, yeah. Since, I mean, in, in the years before Phylloxera, you just made a vine by sticking the neighbor yeah. underground and yeah. it would become a new vine. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, over the years in First in California, then up here, then in Arizona. You've worked with how many different grape varieties making wine? I never counted them. I don't know. In, in Arizona, it was like every, every red under the sun. And it was hard to find whites. It, it's a different, the obstacles down there are different because um, that every major grape growing region in the world has its own set of issues. And down there, the issues are, uh, monsoon conditions at harvest. And you can get rot conditions in the vineyard that are just amazing. They, and a lot of heat to make it all go quickly. Oh yeah, it goes quickly. And the idea was to find varieties that were loose clustered, 
small berries and could stand the, the rain going through them. And, you know, there, there are a number of varieties that have that characteristics. I think the searches, people are still tweaking that down there. Still. But is it fair to say that Pinot is reasonably important to you? Yes. <laughs> reasonably. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing wine. I mean, I, I always marvel at how many ways it can express itself. So this vineyard, which you bought in 69, 68. Bought it in 68, planted in 69. 69. And you sold it when you got divorced or soon yeah. after that. Yeah, yeah. What year was that? Uh, 80, 88. 88? 87, I think we sold this. I think the last crop I took off here was in 87. Up until that time, it didn't have a name other than it was your vineyard. And right. Called him the Chalem Mountain Vineyard. No. Oh, you did call uh, it Chalem, Chalem Mountain. Mountain Vineyard. And, oh, then, okay. and then somebody over near Yamhill registered that name. He, he registered Chalem Valley Vineyard. And I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to fight that one. So, and back, I guess now you don't have to register stuff. I mean, you have to, you should, you registered to, but, but back then, the, the state of Oregon would say you can't do this because you already have something that's, you don't know, some close related name, mm. you know. They don't know when they do that anymore. I think they probably leave it to lawyers to duke it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you'd already used that name? Yes. But not on bottles? Not on bottles, no. Yeah. So the people that bought it from you, I think it was three partners or something like that? The one, the one I met was uh, who owns Jay Vineyard out of California? Oh, uh, because they they sold the Gallo and they they had. A, oh, oh no, I meant you know, who, who bought this from you? Oh, yeah. uh, that was uh, a farmer from Idaho and his sons. Oh, okay. What was it? I can't remember his name now. And they kept it until like. 2015 or something? Yeah, when she bought it then. Yeah. When Judy Georgie bought it. Judy Georgie, yeah. right. And it's now, so it's still called Shayla Mountain Vineyard. Okay. And it's owned by Geodesy Wine, and they also, they have sort of a split name, Geodesy Wine and Capra Cellars, which is, um, as I understand it, is not only a commercial venture, but also um, promotes women winemakers and particularly those uh, without a lot of financial means mm -hmm. to be able to learn the yeah. skills and arts of making wine. I don't have a lot more. You've, you've done a lot of interviews over the years, and I suspect that this is a, a compliment, hopefully, to yeah. the other things that are on record. You also commissioned a book called The Boys Up North for, what, what was that commissioned for? Uh, that was done from our marketing company, and, uh, and that was done in 97, the, boy, the Boys Up North. And there's some, you know, elements of history in there, of my history and other wineries in there. And for the longest time, it was the only history yeah. that um, that told the story of the founding of the industry, really. Okay. Um, obviously, a 
a certain amount of it was through your life, but uh, I mean, there was a chapter on me and a chapter on each of these people. What did the boys up north, what was that title? That title came from Richard Summers. (laughs) He suggested it. Oh, he suggested it? Yeah, yeah. And we thought it was catchy. And would, would that have been what down there they called this group of... The boys up north. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe he called us the boys up north. A number of people around our winery have said, can we just hire you to come in and tell us all these stories? <laughs> because you're full of all the individual things that that you ended up having to do and create out of thin air. Um, because when you first were buying this piece of property and planning it, a lot of the systems that existed even in the 80s didn't yet exist. Did you ever license this piece of property, for instance? Did you get a winery license for it? Or it didn't get that far? But when you got a winery license for the basement in the Dundee Hills, did that become a big issue? Was that a difficult process? No, no, pretty easy. Uh, the, the issue back in those days was is that winery in, there was no dedicated zone for winery in, in agricultural ground back then. And they had a, there was a zoning, a zone called resource industrial, and that's where we fell into. That's yeah. how we got that one. So you had to zone two acres around the, yeah, the yeah, house? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that still happened in 78 when we did it. Yeah. And now it's a permitted use, right? Yes. So. Right. But that wasn't for several year, more years. Yeah. Dick, thanks for this today. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I really appreciate you taking the time yeah. and bringing bottles of wine. Yeah. Um, well, this is, you know, this is the last year, 19 was the last year I start, stopped making wine. I started making wine in 65, and I made wine ever since until last year. And then I didn't make any this year. Probably a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the vineyard. Prince Hill is the vineyard where your house was yeah. after, well, even before, but where you lived. Yeah. And you, um, I presume, sold most of the grapes, but you kept the grapes that you wanted to make into your own wine. Yeah. Until you sold it, what, two years ago? or 2017 we sold 17? it. 17 yeah. sold it to Silver Oak. Silver Oak, yeah. And now you have vines at Grand Island still? Yeah, well, it's the reason that I have vines at Grand Island is I need supply budwood to make more vines of the clone, right? And so and all of a sudden, not only do you have budwood, but you have grapes. <laughs> so you have totally clone 95 down there? <laughs> yes. Actually, it's 117 down there. 117. Yes, yeah. same. Dave came by the... We lived in this cabin, no longer there, but you could see it from here if it were. About three miles away or two miles away? It's up the hill, not even, was crow flies, it's probably a mile. Yeah. So, and you came by, but how did you know I was there? Well, we didn't. That's, I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is our foundation story. We were coming out of Portland looking for land. And kind of, it was part of, we, we were kind of looking about an hour away from Portland all the way around. We didn't do everything. Yeah. But the day we came in this direction, we went to a realtor in Dundee. Oh. 
And this, re I don't know who it was, but it was kind of where the firehouse is. And this realtor said he'd heard that some people had planted grapes. And were you looking to plant grapes at that point? No, no, no. We were just looking for land. land. But yeah, he mentioned yeah. that on yeah, the side yeah, yeah. as we were asking about land that was for sale. Prior to that realtor, we didn't know anybody had even planted grapes at that point. We had no vision of that. But he didn't know where or who. And so we sort of explored all afternoon trying to find some grapes. And we never found any grapes. No. But we were driving up Kingsgrade, and you were out front of the cabin, and we stopped you. Wow. I mean, it's the wackiest story. Yeah. I, I mean, why do you stop somebody? Because he has a beard? I don't know. <laughs> and, and was I working on the BMW and on the kitchen dining room table? Well, you may have been, but we didn't see the dining room table. I, I, I know that was a fixture of the dining room. But, table, yeah. Um, in my memory, you had a wheelbarrow and you may have had something in it, but I don't, I'm not going to hang any hats on well, that. Oh, yeah. I've told that story more times than I can yeah, count. So, I'm sure a yeah. hundred different times or more. Yeah, interesting. But I, I have no idea what we talked about. I do know that we asked you, do you know anybody who has planted grapevines? And I'm sure you had some sort of an answer. Yeah, exactly. And, and we said, can we see them? And uh, you said, well, they're not on this piece of property. And I think you took us around the side of the house. Could you see the vineyard? From yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you, you kind of pointed to where it was yeah. out okay. the back to uh, the vineyard. And it would have included these grapes here. Yeah. I think uh, that day was uh, a total bust in terms of up-close uh, contact with grapevines. Yeah. Um, but we met the Blossers and were invited to a party and met the Letts and I think pretty quickly Corey and Ponzi and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but I, I know when we found the piece of property uh, on Quarter Mile Lane now, um, this one, we asked you to come over and and tell us if it would be a good vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't give, give it a blessing. <laughs> yeah, some. I don't really know if it happened. I mean, I know it happened. I don't remember what you yeah. said. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you discouraged us. Is no, the no. the main thing. Interesting. Within along the same lines. Bill and Susan Blosser drove up one day in their VW van out in front of the cabin and introduced themselves. And I said, you know, and how'd you find out about me, Bill? And they said, well, we have a connection. And it, my high school counselor was his neighbor in Oakland. And the high school counselor had told Bill that this crazy guy is planting grapes in Oregon. <laughs> His high school, he was still talking to his high school counselor? That's amazing. Well, no, they, well, they, no, no, they were neighbors. They lived. Oh, they were neighbors, neighbors. Yeah. got it. Side, houses side by side, up by Lake Temescal. Yeah, they're, they're... Yeah, it's just one degree of separation in this country, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Dick, uh, one other question. When you bought this piece, started planting, Chuck Quirin and David Lett had already done that. There was a... Every year, every other year, there was somebody doing that. In those days, it wasn't a huge horde. Yeah. Uh, there were only 10 of us in the North Willamette Valley that made wine before 1980. Huh. Um, but as P. 
people started to follow your dream, did you feel like you were being, that you needed to be protective of that or that it was more important to share it? Oh, never thought about protecting and always thought about, you know, sharing it. Those of us that started are were really blessed that we could be here at that time and, and actually be in on a new industry in a new part of the world. There was nothing here before. Right. You know, how, how you couldn't, there was no standard of identity for an Oregon wine. How, how important was creating an industry to you? I think it ranks right up on top there. I think I got that impression from Chuck, who all, he, he all thought that way, and then Cal thought that way too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and he supported the idea of collaboration as well? Sure. That's not necessarily part of a, a typical business. I mean, right, right. When, I, when I speak about the, the history of the wine industry and all the collaboration, most people are kind of stunned that we would collaborate with the others. So that's yeah. pretty cool that that came from California. Yeah, I, I, it's almost like the distributors are at one another's throat if they're handling your wine and my wine. They're battling because they don't have, you know, because we're, they're different, right? And, and we're sitting back, what are you guys fighting for? <laughs> yeah. Now, 51, 52 years after you bought this piece of property, and probably your formal entry into the Oregon wine business. <laughs> 52 years. 52 years. How's it turned out? Beyond my expectations. I mean, I don't think we ever thought that we were going to fail. We, that never occurred to us. But we never, I don't think we ever thought how the degree of success we would have. You know, it's like much greater than I would have imagined. One of the elements of that, or, or some of the elements, were clearly that, as you said, we were in this new place. Yeah. And having to create this vision of an industry from scratch, were you betting on Pinot Noir from the beginning yeah, as the variety? As, certainly as the main variety, but I also was looking at other varieties too. And and now you see more of the other varieties coming to the fore. But, but Pinot certainly is the, the ideal one. And collaboration Pinot, the, the other thing that I've often pointed to is that it was important for us to make great wine. Yep. And I don't quite know where that came from. It clearly didn't come from Chuck, but um, I kind of suspect that you were partly responsible for that too. Was wine quality really high in your mind? Mm-hmm, yes. Can't make good wine from bad grapes, right? Well, <laughs> true. <laughs> I'm gonna toast you with that. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com slash 50 years, to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.